0: This country is getting better and better and better. And when that final vote happens and you ascend onto the, onto the highest court in the land, I'm going to rejoice. And I'm going to tell you right now, the greatest country in the world, the United States of America, will be better because of you.
1: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Litman. It was a week where law was hard-pressed to hold its own against politics. Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson endured a grueling 18 hours of questioning from the members of the Senate Judiciary Committee, weathering increasingly rude treatment from several Republican senators on topics that bore little relation to her qualifications and rather seemed designed to produce demagogic talking points for Republican campaigns. The judge began the week with a narrow hold on prospective confirmation and at week's end remained on target for an early April full Senate vote that will make her the first African-American woman to serve on the Supreme Court. But before Judge Jackson takes her place there, the court is set to announce a decision weakening or even overruling Roe versus Wade. In anticipation, several state legislatures are jumping the gun to pass anti-abortion measures that are irreconcilable with Roe, but that they hope will be upheld under a new regime. Others, meanwhile, have begun to pass voting legislation on bogus grounds of reducing election fraud that rather look designed to impose disproportionate burdens on Democratic voters. To help untangle these political and legal webs, We welcome a great group of razor sharp commentators and talking feds favorites. And they are Aaron Blake, a senior political reporter for the Washington Post, where he and I were colleagues and friends. He's one of the country's foremost political reporters and has covered politics for over 20 years. He previously reported for his hometown, Minneapolis Star Tribune and The Hill. Welcome back, Aaron Blake. Thanks for having me, Harry. Alexi McCammon, a political journalist for Axios, where she covers the 2022 midterm elections and the progressive movement. She began her career as a freelance political journalist for Cosmopolitan and a news editor for the online magazine Bustle. In 2019, she was the recipient of the Emerging Journalist Award from the National Association of Black Journalists and was on Forbes 30 under 30 list in 2020. Welcome back, Alexi McCammon.
2: Thanks, Harry. Thanks for having me. And
1: Al Franken. Where to start? He currently hosts the Al Franken podcast, one of the most popular podcasts on politics in the country. He, of course, served as a United States senator from Minnesota from 2009 to 2018. And I thought of his tenure poignantly again this week because he was, for my money, the best and most trenchant and prepared questioner in the Judiciary Committee. Politics, of course, was his second career after his initial rise to fame as a writer on SNL, a comedian and author. He recently again was voted the country's funniest ex-senator, nosing out Jeff Sessions and Bill Bradley. Senator Al Franken, thanks very much for returning to Talking Feds.
3: Oh, poor Joe Lieberman. (laughs) <laughs> that's not fair to him
1: maybe uh honorable mention points all right the big uh hearings this week let's try to start at least with the substance of katanya brown jackson's testimony which took a grueling 18 hours she started with a razor thin margin she seems to have ended with a razor thin margin at least how did she hold up and did she provide her opponents, which were several
4: and nasty,
1: any openings that threaten her ascent to the court?
4: Well, I think that going into this Supreme Court confirmation hearing, we're in a different era than we were even just a handful of years ago because of the machinations with the filibuster. It's not a situation in which you have to get the votes of members of the other party. Of course, the other party is much less willing to give you those votes at the same time. And so that creates a situation in which the name of the game is basically avoiding any missteps that's almost the entire ball game. As long as Joe Manchin is going to vote for Ketanji Brown-Jackson, she is going to be confirmed. And of course, he said uh, on Friday that he is going to vote for her. So she's going to be confirmed. She wanted to avoid any missteps. I, I think generally speaking, she did that. I don't think any time that you're asked repeatedly about your sentencing record as a district court judge, that's going to be a fun experience. There's always things to pick out of that. Certainly, it's why we don't have a whole lot of mayors who wind up in the U.S. Senate or in high office because there's a lot of very small decisions that you have to make that don't get a lot of publicity but wind up being things that your opponents can mine in the future. So I thought she handled herself just fine. There were some tense moments um, with some of the Republicans on the committee, of course, but nothing that is ultimately going to change the calculus of her impending confirmation.
3: I thought the our side played it very cautiously, and I thought it was a little... Unfortunate that, you know, they started doing this victim thing like, oh, the way you treated Bork and the way you treated Alito (laughs) and uh, the whole list. Well, and Kavanaugh was their poster boy for victimhood. What should they have done, Senator? I didn't hear them mention Garland and the fact that, wait a minute, you guys stole two seats and you have a 6 3 majority and you're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. You're the victims. And so I think it was our chance to underscore the importance of the midterms. I mean, June is going to be ugly. And it's going to be ugly because they're going to overturn Roe and they are going to uh, expand Heller and they are going to gut a lot of the EPA's power. It's going to be really ugly. And that no one would say like, Hey, remember, Lindsay, you said, hold me to this tape and use it against me. I'm going to read you the tape. And I'm going to use it against you. And don't give me this thing about Kavanaugh because you said this to the Atlantic Monthly at their conference after Kavanaugh. This was an opportunity to have voters see the importance of the midterms. And I think that it was just too cautious. And I know they had to keep Manchin, but I think they could have done that and done this at the same time.
2: Well, and I think Republicans were really good at that, right? The first three days were sort of a mix of message testing and political jockeying from all of the 2024 hopefuls on the Republican side. And, you know, Aaron, to your point earlier about Katanji Brown Jackson and sort of how she handled really the bait that was being dangled in front of her repeatedly by Republicans, she followed this sort of say nothing playbook, right? When it came to things like court packing, she said it would be inappropriate for her to comment on it. She talked about her methodology instead of, you know, the language that they wanted her to use. She repeatedly was keeping her composure, her facial expressions in check, which, you know, as a human being, no matter who you are, that's really difficult to do and the pressure and the long hours. And I, you know. She did a really good job of keeping it in check. But I think that to the senator's point, Republicans really knew what this opportunity was. The national electorate was paying attention for hours and hours and hours, and Republicans were using it to their benefit for the midterms for 2024. And the best, I think, political theater the Democrats put forward for 2022 and 2024 is Senator Cory Booker and, of course, his now viral moment praising the historic nature of her nomination.
1: And I want to get back to all of that in the political dynamic. Let's just stick with her for a minute, because I think she did an excellent job. She was goaded repeatedly, and she kept it together and absorbed the lesson that first do no harm. But she was really conservative about certain things. Aaron, you wrote about her non-endorsement of the notion of super precedence, which every candidate recently had done. She didn't want to answer who her favorite justice was. Why would you do that? (laughs) (laughs) Why would you be such a fool as to say that? Because it's safe. Because it's safe. First, it was Harlan for a time. Then it was Jackson. But in other words, things that even previous people playing by the playbook had done, she took it back an extra step. And I'm, I'm not sure if that was the White House's decision reflecting the 50-50 margin or hers. Explain what you were talking about with the super precedents.
4: Yeah, so I think this this speaks to exactly what you were talking about, which is basically starting in the 2005 confirmation hearings. This has been a question that has been asked of most of the Supreme Court nominees. Do you think there is such thing as a super precedent? And more specifically, do you think Roe v. Wade is a super precedent? This is their way of getting around the, you know, how might you rule in this specific case? Because, of course, these nominees aren't going to say how they would rule on a case that comes before the court. And so especially Senator Feinstein has been asking a number of these nominees whether they regard Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey as this super precedent. And we saw the last couple of nominees, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. They both kind of played into at least the notion that precedents carry different amounts of weight. Kavanaugh talked about how Roe was a precedent on precedent. Uh, of course, he since suggested that he might be willing to overturn it anyways. And then we had Amy Coney Barrett, who had written about the concept of super precedents and suggested that they existed, but then said that Roe v. Wade wasn't necessarily one. So it was interesting that this came up in a hearing with a Democratic nominee on the podium there. And she was asked about it. And she did not give the answer that a lot of abortion rights supporters would like to, which is that there are precedents that carry a different amount of weight by virtue of how many times they have been affirmed over time. I'm not sure I read a whole lot into it beyond that. I think she was being very careful. I don't think it impacts how she's going to rule in these cases necessarily or says how she'll rule in these these cases. But I do think that it it speaks to maybe a little bit of a setback in the effort to establish these so-called super precedents moving forward
3: that she wasn't willing to go that far. They're going to overturn Roe. So she says it's a super precedent and she gets there and it's been overturned. What does that mean? And Coney Barrett said that Griswold wasn't a super president. I mean, she she wants to get rid of birth control. And now Loving v. Virginia. Yeah, there's a senator from Indiana who said this should be state by state Loving versus Virginia. I mean, that's an actual U.S. senator. Braun, right, from Indiana.
2: Yeah, Senator Braun.
3: And really? Really? Oh, yeah. You know what would be a good state to reverse that? Virginia. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, like, God damn, there are some crazy Republicans around there. And also, they were asking her about stuff that is not ever going to come before her. And they were just trotting out critical race theory. What the hell? And none of them know what critical race theory is. And they know they don't have to. And they just throw it out there. And they're just throwing red meat after red meat after red meat. And it was pretty disgusting. And I think Sass put it right. What do you call it? Jackassery?
1: Jackassery. Yeah. One other quick thing that she gave up right away, the recusal in the Harvard affirmative action case. So I think your point, Senator and Alexi, that the Republicans were playing from the start to the midterms and the Democrats were playing from the start to keep the 50-50 edge and not let Mansion go by the wayside. But yeah, it seemed to me, Cruz, Holly, Cotton, and Blackburn, oddly, were, you know, wanted just to have these slogans
3: that had nothing to do with the battle at all. By the way, keeping the expression on her face during Blackburn was unbelievably great to see because there was this sort of staring in the middle distance of like, I can't. I <laughs> believe how stupid this woman is <laughs> and like <laughs> I've prep nominees
1: it's really a big actually practicing how you you know act when you're getting uh hectored is a and boy did she have it you got me going now because I want to go back to Kavanaugh for a minute too. Because I found it very, very galling. Look, their calculation was: we're going to lose this one. Let's score some points for the midterms. And one of the points was: we're so nice, and you were so mean to it. Kavanaugh. But Kavanaugh was in response to credible allegations of serious misconduct, and the attacks on her, which were as sort of bared fangs, uh, if not more, were you know about things that had nothing to do with her. Fitness. Well, you know
3: what? I thought she wasn't tough enough on people who uh, received pedophilia uh, materials. Yeah, you were. You that that left you pretty worried. Well, I I, I didn't see enough of that. Yeah. Oh, you want? Because let that. me
1: alleviate your concern just to tell you that she's completely across the board where everyone is in her circuit and across around the country.
3: And where Holly's judge is?
1: Let me ask you this: so some of their stuff, the Republican stuff. Was slogans for the midterms. What about critical race theory 1619? Was any of that, do you think, dog whistle racist or race baiting at all? Was it even that low?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you saw the number of black political and judicial groups that put out statements throughout the course of this week after watching Republicans do just that, calling it what it was, saying that they were race baiting. They were trying to paint this caricature of her as the angry black woman. Although they failed, these groups said. And of course, when people are talking about critical race theory, it's not about education or school curricula. It's about race and white grievance and the fear of what your white children are exposed to behind closed doors in a scary school with a diverse student body. That's certainly something that Republicans have been running on, right? The Virginia gubernatorial race. This was something obviously that came up and it's something that they want to continue through 2024. You all saw the RNC put out that image of Katanji Brown Jackson and crossed out KBJ, her initials, and replaced it with CRT. So it's a pretty blatant branding exercise that they are unveiling. And um, again, like it doesn't have anything to do with education. It's about race. And especially when they're invoking something like the 1619 Project, Nicole Hannah-Jones has become like a sort of boogie woman figure for the right, especially for the work she's done and for the simple fact that her project has been implemented in a number of schools across the country.
4: I was going to pick up on what Alexi said. One of the things that struck me, and it plays into the talk about CRT that we're having here, is when this vacancy came open, the number one kind of narrative among conservative media, including some of these senators, the Republican senators on the Judiciary Committee, was about how this was an affirmative action pick, that this was a quota because President Biden had promised that this slot would go to a black woman once the pick was made, that dried up a little bit. And then it was almost completely absent from this hearing. If they believe that she was not a meritorious pick, if they believe that she was given this over other people who were more qualified, you would think they would make that argument. But I think the CRT stuff is a more socially acceptable way for them to make those kinds of arguments. The fact that they go with that and they didn't go with the quota stuff that they talked about early on before she was selected, I think speaks volumes.
2: Wait, but we did get that argument from Senator Lindsey Graham when he was, you know, all about Michelle Childs and like trying to seemingly excuse his political theater against Ketanji Brown-Jackson by being like, well, wait a second, I love Michelle Childs.
1: But it was like Mr. Hyde returned with him. He went, well, oh, my God, here's Lindsey again, the angry uh, senator of confirmation here.
3: What was interesting with that is that Lindsey evidently didn't understand that it's the president who nominates the Supreme Court justices. And and Lindsey ran for president and he didn't win. <laughs> and Biden ran for president and he won. And I would see that's what a Democrat should have pointed out. He actually said, you know, this is funny
1: how he thinks the process works. If you had done in my way, she'd have gotten 60 votes, Judge Child.
3: Oh, he guaranteed that. And it's completely counterfactual. I mean, you he guaranteed that. Oh yeah, right. I mean, it, that was that was sad. Democrats should have held him to that. He looked ridiculous. And on Kavanaugh, no one said, "Um, don't you remember there was like a tip line?" And don't you remember that the tip line? Where did that go? Where did the tips go? Oh, directly to McGann. And where where did the tips go into McGann's wastebasket? So don't be a victim, you guys. Let me ask you this.
1: We're talking about what their real message was and how the uh, nomination was just instrumental for them. All the child pornography stuff, this is a little more far-fetched, but were they thinking QAnon here? And is that part of who they're trying to appeal
2: to? I think the White House said something to that effect, right? Didn't yeah, they signal that Holly was was saying something that They have been peddling some of these phrases from these right-wing boards and QAnon circles. And I think the child porn stuff, too, is almost an extension of what we've seen from Senator Hawley over the last several months, maybe the last year in particular, when he's been on this crusade about, like, masculinity and being, like, the strong American man again and, like, standing up for your family. So when I was watching that, I was thinking, like, there's something weird happening with Republicans wanting to, like, get back to this idea of, like traditional family units and hierarchies and power dynamics.
1: In some ways, it's worse, the accusation of the Hollies and Cruises of the world, because it's not a question of their deepest beliefs. It's even more their question of trying to manipulate the beliefs of the people whose support they need. So that's the kind of broader dog whistle point
2: could also be like, I don't know if low information is the wrong phrase, but like low information voters or people who like are popping their heads up every once in a while, tuning in a couple of times. You might not know that much about Ketanji Brown-Jackson, but you keep hearing these things, especially so passionately from these Republican senators, you might not do the research and ultimately walk away thinking she has some sort of record on child porn that you disagree with. So I think that's part of their calculus, too.
1: Yeah, although it all would mean is, oh, those Dems are child porn hodlers, not, you know, I think they're saying like it's pressure on mansion. They kept their eye on a different ball. I think it's sort of Al's point. All right, let's go to the point you just raised, Alexi, in this sort of transcendent moment of Cory Booker. People were crying in the room. I happened to be on TV right after and I found myself moved to the point of stammering. Was it just the kind of release after so much nastiness or Was that really a two and a half minutes for the ages, do you think?
2: I think the fact that it resonated with so many people, yourself included, shows that it was kind of uh, a message for the ages. But also, I mean, he was just, especially in the unique position of being a black man, it seems like saying, not the quiet part out loud, but saying like what so many on the left had been talking about with respect to her nomination in these hearings before, which was the historic nature of her even being nominated. And I think Senator Booker did a good job, you know, especially in the emotions that he shared, reminding people of the struggles that Black folks face, of the, like, remarkable nature of the fact that she's even sitting there, to Aaron's point earlier, like this coordinated campaign against her from the beginning to say it was this affirmative action selection is already trying to discredit her qualification. So I think it was like a really personal, salient reminder of like, you know, this is an extraordinary human who's faced extraordinary circumstances and has crushed it and obviously belongs here. And I think it went viral for a reason.
3: (laughs) I thought it was remarkable is all this affirmative action stuff they were doing and just how remarkably great she clearly is. And Also, how you mentioned her methodology. She was a district court judge for a long time, and they handle cases where that's what it is. It's methodology. And I just hated, like, what philosophy are you? Are you originalist? Are you this? And it's like, no, I do the work. I do. (laughs) And, And like none of them can understand that. None of them can understand what a judge actually does. Well,
2: especially a black female judge.
3: Yeah, and so offensive, every aspect of their reaction to her. They kept asking her the same damn questions all the time. Oh, and I loved also that neither Lindsay or Cruz let her answer. Yeah, interrupt all the time. Just she'd start and they'd interrupt her, start and interrupt her, start and interrupt her. And and Cruz kept going over. And then finally, so then he says, okay, now answer it. And, and Durbin says, you're way over. No. And then Coons, finally, in the middle of his question, says, OK, you can answer this now. And she answers it. So Durbin goes to Cruz. OK, so she answered your question. And Cruz goes, finally. Right. Right. <laughs> and every time he had interrupted her. Right. My God, the guy. There's something wrong with Cruz. I mean, in my act, I have an entire Ted Cruz section.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I think we know the line, Senator.
1: Or is that, you know, was it somehow methodical? But just to back to Booker, I mean, you mentioned Coons. We also saw Durbin and Leahy sort of rehabilitator in their own way. And Booker, just A, no tongue wagging at all. And B, his infusion of joy, of exultation and faith. I just thought it was extraordinarily impressive. All right. Close out question on soon to be, I think, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Any sense from the record or the, what you got this week where she's going to fall? It's a 6-3 hammerlock court, but I think we can say Sotomayor is sort of here, Kagan, Breyer. Where do you surmise that she might be if you have any opinion about that?
3: She didn't really let us know. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. <laughs> and I I have the feeling I would put her somewhere in between. So, uh, what am I saying? I don't know. Sotomayor <laughs> and Kagan. Or I think she's just going to be brilliant. That's all. I have a feeling that the three of them
4: are going to be in the same camp on a lot of things moving forward here, not necessarily because of their own judicial philosophies and how they compare, but just because of the dynamics of the court that we have now with that six to three majority that the conservative side has. So we may not get a whole lot of indications early on how much difference or how much daylight there is between the three of them.
3: Much better answer than mine. (laughs) (laughs) And you're agreeing with that, Alexi?
2: Yeah, and I would just say that during the hearing, she obviously was asked and said that she agrees with Justices Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh on their view of the precedent of abortion. But of course, what they said during their confirmation hearings isn't necessarily how they will treat
3: it. No, it was a lie what they said. <laughs> Right.
1: I think it'll be interesting because she has a reputation of being a really great colleague, including on the Sensing Commission, but they're going to make it impossible for her. They're going to be so sort of disparaging. But nevertheless, my best guess is over time, she emerges with Briar. You know where I cried? Oh, yeah. Where'd you cry?
3: Her roommate's introduction. Yeah. That's when I cried because that felt really so genuine. I don't think she was doing histrionics or manufacturing, yep. trying to go for heartstrings. To me, if I don't know how long her speech or thing was. It was like, let's say it was seven minutes. It seemed like something that took her eight minutes to write because it was so from the heart. And here's someone who is her freshman roommate in college and then her roommate through law school and someone who herself is a professor at Penn of law and someone who spoke to her as a friend and you just felt who she was and more because this is a friend who knew 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 her i've never seen someone introduced like that never i saw a lot of introductions of people i had never seen anything like that that made me cry she wasn't working hard She wasn't trying to do anything. She just it was that was real. I felt that one was real. I've been in a lot
1: of hearings because my job used to be to prep folks and they're all staged and contrived. But that was the thing about this. There were some genuine moments. Oh, my God, something real, a real person. It was really striking. She's a real person. It is now time for a Spirited Debate, brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine & More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages.
0: Thank you, Harry. In today's Spirited Debate, we uncork the notion of drinking bottled wine versus canned wine. Yeah, wine in a can. Wine connoisseurs may stay true to the bottle, but wine canosaurs have adopted the untraditional packaging for its added convenience, ideal for picnics, concerts, and outdoor events, really anywhere corkscrews are scarce. And since aluminum cools faster than glass, it reduces the time it takes to chill your favorite Sauvignon Blanc. But swirling your wine in a glass does help it open up, which gives it a lot more flavor, Of course, you can always transfer your canned wine to a glass, but if you're looking to experience the subtleties of a nice bottle, drinking from a glass adds a lot. There are wines more suited to the bottle, and there are those well-suited for the canned life. Crisp and sparkling whites and rosés in particular tend to fare best in cans, but bigger, bolder wines will usually benefit from a nice glass. It would seem both have their place. Still on the fence between bottles or cans? There's always wine in a box. And remember, always think interesting, drink interesting. Thanks to our friends at Total
1: Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Speaking of the conservative hammerlock on the court, I wanted to talk a little bit about the way things are changing in the state level, even beyond the court's decisions. The senator mentioned the widespread expectation that Roe is going to be either gutted or just nullified in the Dobbs case. But, you know, you have states that are already jumping the gun. There were 100, most since Roe, 100 new regulations this year, and some of them are dramatically unconstitutional under current law. I guess the question is... What are things going to look like in a year where abortion is almost unavailable in many states? What is it going to look
4: like on the ground? I think in a lot of ways, at least politically speaking, what's going to happen is Republicans are going to have been the proverbial dog that catches the car if, in fact, this winds up happening. People generally think of abortion as being a 50-50 issue in this country. And and generally speaking, it is when you talk about, should we have more restrictions? Should we have less restrictions? But when you're talking about something like overturning Roe v. Wade, this is something that about two-thirds of Americans oppose. I've written in recent years about how people are willing to entertain even shrinking the window for abortions to 20 weeks. That was a pretty popular proposal a number of years ago when a lot of Republican state legislatures we're enacting that or we're trying to enact that. But I think taking it from that 20-week to, you know, the Mississippi law is 15 weeks, Texas is basically six weeks, and then, of course, we have an Oklahoma, which is essentially a prohibition. It's after 30 days, but practically speaking, that means you can't get one because of how this works. People are going to be confronting a very different reality than they've been used to for a number of years, and people don't always like those overhauls of American life. This issue has worked great for Republicans for a lot of years when it comes to rallying their base, promising them that this day would one day arrive when they could get abortion outlawed or at least leave it up to the states. I think politically speaking, if and when that happens, we're going to see a a whole lot of unintended consequences, not just for people personally, which is, of course, very important, but politically for the people who have been pushing this for a very, very long time.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think what's going to be interesting to watch, I'm sure you all remember after the Texas law was announced, there was a, a doctor who wrote it op-ed basically daring someone to sue him or arrest him for helping provide an abortion. And that just to me felt like a really significant moment, because as we know, it's not just Texas that's now threatening to do this. And Texas is keeping it to their state. Other states are saying You know, if you help someone cross state lines or you live in a different state and you help them, we're coming after you, too. So I think personally, that changes a lot of things for a lot of people, even if it just instills fear in folks. To your point, Harry, about this, whether we're going back to back alley abortions, uh, this certainly instills fear in people. And it also emboldens your neighbors, (laughs) your coworkers, your extended friend network. To not just be so intimately involved in a part of your life that should be between you and your doctor, but to take legal action against you and the doctor who helped you. It's like, I don't know. I haven't been around that long, but it sounds uh, not like something I want to experience.
3: Democrats should have been hitting that and hitting that in this. Because Americans, you're right, its I guess it's two-thirds on overturning it. And this is very frightening. And they're talking about, like, being prosecuted for getting an out-of-state pill to have an abortion. I mean, this is really draconian.
2: And these anti-abortion groups are celebrating the creativity, they say, that these state lawmakers are using to try to get around Roe. And and, and they're celebrating the, I don't know, extreme nature of these things.
3: And what happens to in vitro? What happens to in vitro fertilization? I think one thing that's
4: important to remember as we talk about all these states that are essentially passing laws that are unconstitutional, according to the Supreme Court precedent as it exists right now. One is that they're building these things in so they can be enacted immediately if and when Roe is overturned. The other thing, though, I think, which which I don't think we should undersell is they are sending a message to the Supreme Court that basically says, if you don't overturn Roe v. Wade right now, you are going to have to deal with all of these other things where you have to define the new threshold. Is it 15 weeks? Is it 12 weeks? Are you going to allow us to have people inform on their neighbors on this stuff? So if you're one of those six conservative justices who were appointed by a Republican nominee, who knows that the people who supported you for that role wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade, and then you see all those cases coming down the pike that you might have to deal with, I'm not a Supreme Court justice. I don't know how much the caseload impacts their decisions but they're going to make it much more difficult for these justices if their idea is as some justice I think John Roberts has in some ways kind of chipped away at these things over time rather than doing it all in one fell swoop
1: yeah they're still going to have to define a new border presumably unless they really say anything goes. the thing is the scenario is roe v Wade arrested a political movement in the country that was building toward a kind of national consensus, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the story now, though, right? If, if it really is, no holds barred, then the country in 2022 looks so different and you're just going to have really extreme patchwork solutions. And that's going to make for all kinds of bitter, bitter divides and conflicts and, and terrible medical outcomes
4: for for women.
1: No prospect now for a federal solution
4: for a federal legislation on abortion, do you think? I don't see any way they could get to that point. If they can't agree on on voting rights or- or. Fido says <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. what's, what's that? What's that?
1: America's hurting Fido? Let's go. All right. So voting rights, where there had been all this action and interest, the war has served to sort of divert what had been a sharp focus. Texas has just passed its law and they had a round of primaries. 13% of all mail ballots were rejected because, you know, almost all of them because voters failed to meet the new ID requirements. What impact do we think the new post-2020 restrictions passing now are likely to have in the actual upcoming midterms?
2: You know, for Axios, we just recently published this special deep dive newsletter about the state of voting and how voting rights activists and organizers are thinking about this, because the landscape, as you mentioned, Harry, in 2022 looks totally different than what they were up against in 2020. Erin, you you had a great story about the Texas ballot rejection rates, and in it, you mentioned the number of rejections that came from urban areas and cities, which politically speaking could hurt Democrats.
0: Mm -hmm. That's right.
2: And the reason I bring it up is because because when we talked to a lot of these organizers for our deep dive, they talked a lot about education and how that has to come before organizing because these laws are changing, because there's more restrictions on the books this time than there was in 2020, because in 2020, a lot of the education, as you all know, was around mail-in voting because that was the new thing that was foreign to a lot of people. Now there's so much more to educate folks on about what's actually going on in their states. And so when I read that, I was kind of thinking the organizers might need to do a better job educating folks about these voter ID laws because, you know, they're strict to be sure and new and different, but it seems like it's a matter of organizing and educating folks.
4: I think the Texas example is important, not just because the rejected ballot rate was so high that 13% of all mail ballots in the primary were tossed out. And this is the first state to hold a 2022 primary that had just redone all of its election, not all of its election, a lot of its election laws. The fact that this cropped up so quickly showed what an impact these laws can have, I think should not be lost on anybody. There are two caveats to that that I think that are important. One is that in Texas, this probably doesn't matter nearly as much as it would in other states because there's just not as much of a vote by mail regime there. They have very small numbers of people who actually can vote by mail if they want to. It's people who are disabled, who are 65 and older. The other is that to the extent this was a problem in the primaries and it was a big problem, it is something that people who, if they have the will and the desire and and really follow through can fix relatively easily. As Alexi said, this was a lot about education. In Dallas County, for instance, most of the people who had their ballots tossed did not fill out the voter ID box that they had to for their ballot. So this was people who had new rules that they were unaware of or missed the box or something. Educating them, drawing them to those boxes where they have to put that information could seemingly cut down significantly on the number of rejected mail ballots. But of course, this comes back to knowing that Democrats vote by mail a lot more. Is there going to be the will to really educate people and prevent this from happening again? I I think certainly the Secretary of State's office is going to talk a good game and say this is easy to fix. Actually fixing it is another matter entirely, especially to the degree that we've seen Republicans try to game these election laws over the last year
3: plus. Republicans, legislators, when they write these laws, they just make it harder to vote and harder to register to vote. But the way they design them always is to make it uh, much more likely that it'll affect Democratic voters. So it'll affect students. They specifically write, "Okay, you can only vote at your permanent address. So if you're a college student, college students, their permanent address may be where they live three months out of the year. So they can't vote at their school. They don't care if a few of their voters don't get the vote, as long as there's much more of our voters. And that's what they do deliberately. Also, this is all big lie stuff. The big lie is that there was, was fraud. There wasn't fraud. There wasn't fraud. There wasn't a lot of fraud.
1: That's what drives these supposedly.
3: All right. Since you mentioned big lie,
1: I'd like to go to the midterms. But before I do, I'll say with some trepidation, Aaron wrote a really good piece today about Ginny Thomas. If anyone
4: wants to, Ginny Thomas discuss. Yeah, just just real briefly, I'll I'll summarize the piece for people. It, you know, <laughs> there, there have been conversations for a long time about whether Clarence Thomas should be recusing himself from cases that involve issues where his wife has served as a lobbyist. She is more involved in politics than any other Supreme Court justice's spouse or family member deeply involved in conservative and Republican politics. I think that the revelation that we we found out about this week, which is that she was texting with Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, as they were trying to overturn the election, brings this into a new realm. And the reason is that Clarence Thomas in January was the lone dissenter when it came to saying the Trump White House should be able to withhold documents from the January 6th committee. We now know, based upon the report from the Post, Bob Woodward, CBS's Robert Costa, that the conversations that she was having with the White House means she was strategizing with them about the actual issues that are involved in the January 6th committee's work. There is a very real chance that Clarence Thomas voted to withhold documents that maybe they weren't direct communications from Ginny Thomas, but they might have been describing things that she was involved in. And I think that really takes the recusal debate into another realm. And I've seen even uh, a number of conservative commentators whose judgment I really respect, like David French, basically saying, look, this is pretty obvious at this point.
3: I've asked a couple of my Democratic colleagues on the committee to write a question for the record for Judge Jackson, which is this. Judge Jackson, if your husband turned out to be a complete nutcase and repeatedly asked Ron Klain to overturn the 24 election that Biden lost... Would you recuse yourself if a House committee investigated an attempted coup by the outgoing administration wanted to subpoena documents?
2: Wait, I love this. Someone has to ask this. Don't they? Then no one's going to. You know that.
3: So far, (laughs) I won't tell you. No one
1: has jumped at that? Can you believe it? No one has
3: bitten. (laughs) I I sent it to a Republican colleague who has a sense of humor, and I just kept saying, like, you got to ask this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, last thing I'll say on this is just that I think move on. The progressive group is the only one that I've seen who has called for Justice Thomas's actual resignation. So some folks are starting to dip their toe going beyond recusal. I don't know whether and how that will become louder, but. uh,
1: Well, I mean, I'll go the other way because there's just no law here but it's such a boatload of crazy. And how about the whole with Mark Meadows, you know, the, the Lord is going to fix this and, all right. It seems to me that this whole conversation we now know, based from the first point that the Senator made has been about the midterms and in the statutes and really in Jackson's hearing, that's what has been the Republican sharper focus. I just want to talk about a couple questions. We'll, you know, be talking about them for the next several months. But just to get a little bit down in the weeds on what's coming, what do we know about what Trump's hold on the party is and how much weight his endorsements hold? There's reasons to think that, that it's maybe slipping or there are reasons to think it's as sharp as ever.
2: I think uh, what is less interesting to me is the weight of his endorsement and more how far and wide his presence is and his tentacles go, like school boards, state legislatures, governors, senators. He's really not stopping at any level. And, And that to me suggests a larger, hopefully for them, I think, takeover of the government.
4: I think it's less the impact of the endorsement, and and he's had some stinkers so far this year. I mean, Sean Parnell, the candidate who had a dropout in Pennsylvania because of domestic violence allegations, you know, he rescinded the Mo Brooks endorsement in Alabama because Mo Brooks was going nowhere. He's woke. Mo's gone woke. Mo Brooks is too woke. I never thought I'd hear anybody say that (laughs) in my entire life. (laughs) What was his woke offense? I just got to hear this. So Mo Brooks said that at a rally that people should move past 2020 and focus on moving forward because that election is over. And this was this was a bridge too far for Trump, apparently. But it did take him seven months after those comments to actually rescind the endorsement, which I thought was a, an interesting part of that story. Does Trump know what
3: woke is? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Does anyone anymore? No, well, that, that's actually <laughs> yeah. a good point. Right. I woke. <laughs> Good point. Very good point.
1: I mean, it sounds like, Aaron, you think there's some real reason to think. Brooks actually might be a witness test, but there's some reason to think that it's eroding, although it's tricky because if anyone crosses him, he's so personally vicious, he can probably still move
3: the needle in individual races.
4: That's exactly the point.
3: I've counted him out a lot. Yeah. For example, when he said, I like people who weren't captured. Yeah, my. Yeah. I, I knew that was the end of him.
1: All right. A quick question then from the other side. (laughs) Look, this week we have the lowest unemployment in 50 years. We're emerging from COVID. Biden's doing a masterful job on the international stage, but it just doesn't seem to translate into popular support. Why? And come the midterms, how does the average Democratic candidate have to handle support or distance from the president of the United States?
2: It's going to be state by state for sure. I think depending on the president's approval, obviously, you all know voters are more emotional than they are rational, I think, when filling out polls or responding to surveys. So I think that's certainly part of it. He's had a little bit of a bump over the last several weeks, given Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the way he's been handling that. But Democrats need a better message. Senator, I'm sure you agree. They need a message. Democrats deliver is not working. And like there's been such a public display of them failing on the Hill that it's almost like a joke of a message. And Democrats are desperate to find a new one. Lately, you'll see them talking about lowering prescription drug costs, which was something that was really helpful for them in 2018. Um, But they need a better message.
3: That was going to be part of of the legislation my argument has been for months and months and months that they should put the elements of build back better each on the floor so people could see what they are because the media is all about horse race and inside baseball and it was about is it 3.5 trillion is it 1.5 trillion is it 1.7 trillion where's mansion where's cinema Instead of holy mackerel, you mean universal pre K, subsidizing childcare? These are things that are wildly popular. Bringing down the cost of prescription drugs was part of that. You put those on the floor, yeah, they're not going to get 60 votes, but then people see what's there and you get Mansion and Cinema to sign off on some of it. And then you put it in a a reconciliation package and you pass it. And they should have done that. I was saying this in October.
2: You make it sound easy.
3: The Senate just ain't the same. Isn't it clear? (laughs) Nothing's easy, but it was smart. It would have been smart. I mean, I did this. I I was doing this on my podcast in October saying these are good elements. No one knows what the hell they are. Universal pre-K in and of itself would be huge. The return on investment of universal pre-K of early childhood education has been demonstrated over and over and over again. Kids who have early childhood education are much less likely to be left back a grade. Girls are less likely to get pregnant in adolescence. They're all more likely to graduate from high school. They're more likely to go to college and graduate and get a good job, much less likely to go to prison. Why be against that? And then also you can go to work if you have a three or four year old. You talked about doing this
4: in in October. Don't you want to have that vote as close to the midterm elections as possible? (laughs) Well, okay, do it now. (laughs) Well, we're still a long ways away from the midterm. I wouldn't be surprised if they take you up on this offer eventually. I just wonder about the wisdom of doing it in the, the fall or the spring of the year before the election.
3: Well, if you had done it in the fall, then some of this stuff would have kicked in and people would have seen the benefits of it.
1: All right, we are out of time. We just have a a quick second for our final Talking Five feature where we take a question from a listener each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. Today's is from simply Max. Maybe it's like uh, where the wild things are, Max. But it's the softball that Judge Jackson let pass. Who is your favorite justice and
2: why? Not a favorite. Uh, But a noteworthy Justice Sotomayor, first Latina justice, representation matters. That's five words. There should be a semicolon in there somewhere.
3: (laughs) I was going to say Sotomayor as well. Okay, uh, five words. uh, Five (laughs) words. She's really great. (laughs) And then then I'll expand on, uh, she was my uh, first confirmation hearing and she was the only one that I talked to where, when she came on my visit to the office, I said, I'm not a lawyer, but I played one in a sketch. And she's the only uh, nominee who laughed. Oh, <laughs> that says a lot about other nominees. <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> but she's great. Aaron? So maybe I misunderstood the question. Are we supposed to be talking about current justices? or no, like-
1: uh uh-uh. all time, all time.
4: Oh, uh, you, I mean, Thurgood Marshall, but also, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to go for the, the trio from Minnesota, Pierce Butler, Warren Burger, Harry Blackman. Minnesotans are very disproportionate. The Minnesota
1: Twins, the there old you go. Minnesota Twins. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Triplets. Aaron said
4: it for me. John Marshall
1: started from scratch. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Senator Al Franken, Alexi McCammond, and Aaron Blake And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. We're available on the Spectrum News app, which provides local stories, weather, and information that matter to you and your community. You can download the Spectrum News app on your Apple or Android device. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. You can check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com. And you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post discussions about special topics exclusively for supporters. And these aren't outtakes or simply ad-free episodes, though we do have those there, but original one-on-one discussions with national experts. Just in the last few days, we've posted discussions with former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Tom Insel, about Biden's mental health care plan. And next week, we will be launching our new season of Talking Books with a conversation with Juliet Kayyem about her new book, The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Submit your questions to Questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, Associate Producer Olivia Henriksen, Assistant Producer Matt McArdle, Sound Engineering by Adam Macias, Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Ria Cohen-Gilbert, Kalena Tano, and Emma Maynard. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Fez is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Litman. Talk to you later.